Well, good morning again, everyone. I invite you to stand as we go to the text this morning. We'll be in Romans 3, starting in verse 21. Before we do this, let's start with a prayer, a prayer of Shema that dedicates ourselves, recommits ourselves to the Lord before we uh, come to his word this morning. Say it after me. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Amen. These are the very words of God. Romans 3, starting in verse 21. But now, a righteousness from God apart from the law has been revealed, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. These are the words of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. I was 10 years old and sleeping at my grandmother's dusty old house outside of Jamestown. And if you remember a while back, this was my grandma who had an extensive collection of creepy clowns, including this painting in her living room that still haunts my dreams. This is the actual one. I swear that the eyes followed me as I walked around the room. I will never get that image out of my head. Well, that evening, uh, I woke up in the middle of the night usually to the sound and sights of the disturbing clown vacuum cleaner cover. She had one of these vacuum cleaner covers, which I don't know why, but it also had to be a clown. And just the way it hung off the one as it stared at you while you slept, most of the time my brother and I would move it into the bathroom because we could not sleep with that thing in the same room as us. Most of the time I woke up to that sight But this night, I didn't wake up to the fear of Bozo hovering over my bed. It was actually a much deeper fear than that. I had this overwhelming sense of dread in my soul. And I don't know why I remember this. We all have these memories, right, as kids, and they seem fairly random. Things that I remember that you'd think I'd remember, like the big stuff and the big opportunities. But there's just a small um, day, no special reason, no special visit, just happened to be there. But I woke up that night with this dread in my soul. And at 10 years old, I remember I got up out of my bed and I went and I sat on the stairs. And I had this sense that I wasn't right with God. You see, I'd grown up in the church. My father is a pastor. My grandfather was a pastor. So I'd heard all the stories. I'd been through all the Sunday school. I knew that God loved me and I knew that God was for me. But I knew I wasn't right with God. I knew that, 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 I, I, that something had to happen, that, that he and I were not on good terms. And so as I sat there thinking, I remember specifically having this thought. 
You see, my, like I said, my father was a pastor, my grandfather was a pastor, and I remember thinking specifically that if I became a pastor, then God would be happy with me. I remember that specific phrase because it kept going on and out of my head. I'll, I'll become a pastor, and then God will be happy with me. And now, I don't know why I necessarily remember this, but I do know that I don't want to live in fear. And I don't want to live in anxiety. I want God to be happy with me. I want something better. And our passage this morning offers us something better. In fact, Martin Luther claimed that these six verses were, quote, the chief point and the very central place of the epistle and of the whole Bible. Yikes. I read that on Monday, and there was fear and trembling all week. <laughs> the chief point in the very central place of the epistle and of the whole Bible. So I think what would help us is if we recap a little bit, get our bearings on where we're at in the letter, because Paul here is offering us something better if we can see it. Let's start right at the beginning. If you remember in Romans where we started off, Paul starts off his letter, his epistle, like many other of his letters. In fact, all of his letters, he started off with a greeting. He has greetings, he has salutations, he has a prayer for this Roman church. He wants to visit them. And after he gets through all of his initial opening greetings, he makes sort of his first statement. He makes sort of his uh, initial opening to his argument. And he says this, for in the gospel, this is verse, uh, chapter 1, if you're there, I would, I'd encourage you to uh, stay there with me. Go to chapter 1, verse 17. In verse 17, he makes sort of this first opening statement. He says this, for in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed. He starts there. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed. Now, this is a big deal. And let me explain it a little bit. Take a look. First, he says, in the gospel. Now, we tend to capitalize this word. In fact, a lot of times we tend to capitalize every letter in this world. We, we highlight it. We emphasize it. We put a halo over the top of it. And what we end up doing is we highlight this word to the point that it actually becomes an intimidating word. We can't even really get our heads around it or our minds around it because it feels a little too ominous for us. But this was a word used every day in the first century. This just simply meant good news. That's it. No other special ah, moment with this word. That's all it means. Is that Paul says, I've got some good news for you. So what is it, Paul? What, what is the good word? Well, then he says, a righteousness from God is revealed. Righteousness is another one of these words that we tend to spiritualize. And for good reason, absolutely. There's, it's used a lot in the Bible. But this too is a common word in the first century. And at the root of this word is just simply right standing. We are in right standing. When you are righteous, it means you are in right standing with the one that you're talking about or talking with. I would hope that most of you in the room are okay with me. Does anyone have any problems? You wanna, are we good? Is that, are we? If you are, why don't you see me afterwards if, if you've got something? It might get awkward in the room. 
But I assume that you aren't harboring any ill will towards me. You aren't angry with me. You're not sticking needles in a voodoo doll with my face on it. Right? And if that's the case, then by its root definition, I am righteous before you. That's all the word means. I'm righteous before you. Now that might sound silly because in our context, we tend to use it in a spiritual way and we tend to use it to mean exclusively for God. But in its common everyday use, that's all it means. I stand righteous before you. I believe I stand righteous before my wife. I think we're good. But there are times I walk in the door and I don't know if I stand righteous before my wife at the moment. Maybe you've had that experience. But I think it's helpful to know the the everyday, the common language, so that we can get past, again, uh, some of that intimidating factors when we read the good news is that a righteousness from God is revealed. What does that mean? What Paul is saying is this. I've got great news. You can be right with God. I've got some really good news. You and God can be good You can be in good standing with God. It's all it means. Maybe if my 10-year-old self goes back and read this, I'd be very interested. Well, what do you mean, Paul? I can be in right standing. I can actually, God and I can be good. And now what Paul's going to do now is he's going to take this opening statement and he's going to add to it. He's going to begin to make an argument. He's going to add different things to it in order to reveal to us what it is. What is it, Paul? That is this good news. How can I be right with God? He's going to begin to add to it. He wants to show us something better. But what happens is that Paul leaves us on a cliffhanger because the next verse, 118, he says this. The wrath of God is being revealed. Wait a minute here. Nice, Paul. Come on now. You, you told me that the good news is that a righteousness of God is being revealed. And then one verse later you say, psych, actually the wrath of God is being revealed. Wait a minute. You just pulled the rug out from under me. And Paul's doing something here. He says the wrath of God is being revealed. He actually then doubles down. He takes the better part of three chapters laying into his audience a mixture of religious outsiders he calls the Gentiles and the religious Jewish insiders. And we have mentioned before that the tension between these two groups is the foundation for writing the book of Romans in the first place. He doubles down on these groups and he lays into them. He says the outsiders come from godlessness and wickedness. He says the insiders come from a life of false morality and empty pedigree. And by the end, you're limping Right? You're like, okay, I get it. Whew, that was a little too much. Right? By the end, you're limping. By the end, and, and I think for us, we've, we've spent four weeks on this. We've spent four weeks going into it, uh, getting laid into it. I think between that and cold and flu season and sub-zero temperatures and uh, seasonal affective uh, disorder, we've got it tough. Like, this has been a rough time for us in Buffalo here. In fact, my family does not even acknowledge the last four weeks ever existed. We just pretend like it didn't. Nope, didn't happen. It's just going by. We took one photo of all the people uh, on, our be- on our couches that are sick and are tired, and I just took one picture and photo it, and that was it. Thank you. 
We just don't pretend it is. It's been a hard week. And if you've been in our Genesis class, we're doing Genesis 1 through 11. We were in Genesis 3 with sin today. So it's like you come and you get it at the elective hour. Then you come here and you get it. And you're like, give me a break now, right? But here we are again. Paul kind of dangles the carrot and says, hey, a righteousness of God has been revealed. And then one verse later, one verse later, we go right back to wrath. And like I said, he uses all four weeks of our time, he uses the better part of three chapters to do it. But now, finally, we've arrived. We've made it, friends. We're in Romans 3, chapter, or Romans 3, verse 20. We've made it. And now, finally, Paul is ready to add to his opening statement. So if you're filling, you, you filled in the first one, a righteousness from God is revealed. That's 117. He now takes almost three chapters to hit us over the head. And now we're here and he's ready to add on. So a righteousness from God is revealed. And now in 321, he says, a righteousness from God apart from the law has been revealed. It took him three chapters to add four words a righteousness from God apart from the law has been revealed. His conclusion one verse earlier, if you actually you read a, a, one verse earlier in 19, he says this. This is his conclusion to everything we've looked at for the last four weeks. He says this, Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. No one will be declared righteous. No one can be in good standing. Remember, righteousness just means right standing. No one can be in right standing with God by obeying the law. You see, God's law was the way in which he wanted us to live in perfect unity with him. But insiders with their godlessness and their wickedness, or, or the insiders with their reliance on false morality and empty pedigree, discover that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. This is his conclusion. Everyone doesn't measure up. Nobody measures up. A righteousness of God. If you want a righteousness from God, if you want to be in good standing with God, and you, you and God want to be good, it's not going to come from the law. It's not going to come from obeying the law. It's not going to come from your morality or your standing or your family history or any of that. Forget that. It is apart from the law. And while this righteousness, this right standing with God can't come from obeying the law, he does say in the next little bit that the law, the reason for the law is that it testifies to this good news. It testifies to it. So the law in and of itself cannot bring you following the law, uh, building your life on morality, building your life on a pedigree, building your life on, on your family history or whatever it is you try to lay on it. It's not going to work. Apart from the law, it's been revealed. But the law testifies to this good news. They're actually in the law. We see how we can be in right standing with God, even though it's not the thing itself. Let me give you an example. In the book of Hebrews, it talks about some of the ways the law points to this good news. And one way it describes it is in chapter 9. And in chapter 9, it uses a very specific word that is only found one other place in the New Testament. It's hilastrion. 
And this word hilostrion is translated as atonement cover or mercy seat. And what it was, it was the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. And they believed that there was this special presence, not just inside, but actually literally on the seat itself, right on the lid itself. And if you remember, the, if you've seen a picture of there's two angels that kind of are doing sort of a, a oh, kind of like doing like one of these, and another one that's over here doing one of these. And they believed right in the center is where God's very presence dwelt. And they did that because they didn't want any actual image, physical image, to be demonstrated. They wanted the, just the, the, the omnipresent nature of God to be there. So, the, so right there on that atonement cover, right on that place where it covered up the Ark of the Covenant was where God's very presence lied. And back in the Old Testament, what they would do is God's people would gather to deal with all the ways that they had broken the law that year. And they called it the Day of Atonement. And the high priest would enter the holy part of the temple and offer sacrifices, bulls and coats, before the ark. And he would actually sprinkle the blood on the hystralia. He would, he'd sprinkle the blood on top of that cover, right where God's presence dwelled. And symbolically, it was to say, God, we have messed up. We have screwed up. No one is righteous. They knew that back in the Old Testament. No one can follow this law that you've given to us. No one can follow perfectly the ways in which we live in unity with you. And so we recognize that we, we deserve punishment. We deserve separation. But you have given us a way out. In your mercy, you've given us a way out so that we can continue to be in unity with you. And so we take something that doesn't deserve to die, and it dies, and the blood sprinkles on top of you in order for us to be right with you. And that, Paul says, that mercy, that ability for something else to go in your place is a way in which the law testifies to something better on the way. That this, this, this ceremony, this day, this ritual was meant to show that God was going to fix things, that there was, there was mercy, there was grace, that even in back then that they knew they couldn't keep it, that every year they went back again and again because they messed up year after year after year. And there was mercy that was found year after year. And that, Paul says, that is the way. In fact, even in the description in Leviticus 16, it says this, he shall then slaughter the goat for the sin offering for the people and take its blood behind the curtain and do with it as he did with the bull's blood. He shall sprinkle it on the atonement cover. There's that word. And in front of it. In this way, he will make atonement for the most holy place because of the uncleanliness and the rebellion of the Israelites, whatever their sins have been. Whatever their sins had been. It would make atonement for it. It would cover it. That in some very real way, it was saying, we are guilty, we have fallen short, but you have made a way for us to be in right standing with you. And the blood of this atonement cover will cover our sins. And it was a ceremony of mercy. And it testified to something that was on its way. So we have had four weeks of cliffhangers Paul takes three chapters to add these four words apart from the law to his opening statement of good news. And I don't know about you, but I'm thinking, all right, Paul, spit it out already. What is it? 
what has been revealed, well, it's something better. So if the good news is this, a righteousness from God is revealed, 117. He then adds three chapters later, a righteousness from God apart from the law has been revealed. And now the next verse, he's ready to add again. A righteousness from God apart from the law is given through faith in Jesus. Faith in Jesus. In verse 25, it says, God presented Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. Now, this word atonement in your Bibles might be translated in different ways, but guess what word it is? The atonement seat, the atonement cover. It's fact, it's the only other time in the Bible besides Hebrews 9. This is the only other time in the New Testament it's used, and we're supposed to see that connection. That just as the Israelites went year after year in order for their sins to be covered, Jesus has now come and is now the atonement cover. He is now the one that not only is the atonement cover, but is the sacrifice, it says, in his blood to be the sacrifice on our behalf. Jesus is the mercy seat sacrifice, the day of atonement scapegoat, and it is through his blood that forgives sins. And this is better for many, many reasons. Let me give you a few. One, Hebrews 9 continues to tell us that Jesus did not enter heaven to offer himself again and again the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood. Jesus did not enter heaven to offer himself again and again every single year like the Israelites had to do. The people had to keep going. They had to keep go, traveling. They had to keep uh, pilgrimaging out into the, the holy place in order to have those sins dealt with. Their sacrifices were only temporary. So you better hope you did it right this time, and you better hope you do it right the next time. Because you got to keep doing it again and again and again. I don't know about you, but our house has a sump pump. Many, many uh, uh, houses in this area have a sub pump. And our sub pump runs constantly. Particularly when it's melting, when it's raining, things like this. I'm talking every 10 to 15 minutes, that thing kicks on and it goes. And every time I hear it, I feel two things. One, I feel thankful. I'm thankful. I, it kicks on. I go, oh yeah, the sub, oh good, it's working. That's good. Right? I feel very thankful. But I also, and Molly will tell you, I have this uh, a hint of anxiety that comes up every time I hear it because I think to myself, I'm really glad that kicked on. I sure hope it kicks on next time. I sure hope that thing kicks on next time. When I was in eighth grade, but we lived, uh, we lived just literally a couple streets away from here, away from where we live now, and our sub pump didn't kick on the next time. And it was quite a sight, and my dad was none too pleased. I remember that uh, very vividly. Um, a lot of things got damaged and got ruined. There's an anxiety in the temporary, isn't there? Even when things are working, you know it's not a guarantee where this is going to happen the next time. And so while I'm thankful that my sump pump kicks on, I know next time it's going to have to kick on again. And the next time it's going to have to kick on again. And the next time it's going to have to kick on again until one day it doesn't kick on. And then I'm going to have a big problem. Then I'm going to have a big problem. Don't even get me going about going away on vacation. (laughs) 
there is an anxiety in the temporary. And the sacrifices work until they don't. And then you have a big problem. If you're an Israelite, the sacrifices work until they don't work. And then what do we do? You have a big problem. But Jesus doesn't need to go through this again and again, year after year. It is finished. He doesn't need to go into heaven to report and offer himself again and again. When he said it is finished, he meant it. It's finished. You don't have to go through it again and again. We don't have to travel. We don't have to continually offer sacrifices again and again and again. It's done. But not only does Jesus finalize our forgiveness, he legitimizes it. Because when God's people gathered on the Day of Atonement, those sacrifices didn't forgive sin. It just simply bought them time. It didn't forgive their sin. It bought them time. Because here in our passage, in verse 25, it says this, In his forbearance, in God's forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. The sins that had gone on before Jesus, the things that had gone on before Jesus' sacrificial atonement on the cross, those sins had not yet been dealt with. The sacrifices only bought the Israelites time. It bought the people of the Old Testament time. They knew even when they were sacrificing that this wasn't, this, this animal, it didn't equate to me. This isn't, this isn't a one-for-one proposition here. This is simply allowing God in his judgment to hold off until the time had come where someone would come who could bear it all. And so these sacrifices that had to happen again and again and again didn't even deal with the problem. Now getting back to my house, our sunroof leaks. We have a sunroof and it leaks, but I'm saving up money for a backup sub pump so I can't fix it right now. So what we have done is we've put a giant tarp over the sun, the sunroof. It's just, there's a, we're those neighbors who have a tarp on our roof. It's in the back, so you can't really see it. Get off my back, okay? I'll fix it eventually. Now, here's the thing. We don't have a leak. The leak is gone. But we didn't fix the problem, right? The problem's still there. We haven't fixed it. We've simply bought ourselves time. And I'm already starting to see a rip in that tarp. So I'm going to have to go buy a new tarp soon. We're going to have to replace that tarp again and again and again because we haven't fixed the problem. See, the sacrifices didn't fix the problem. It simply bought them time. And they were going to have to fix it again or remedy it in some way again and again and again until the time came when someone could come. I guess in this analogy, it would be buffalo roofing who could fix it permanently, who could fix it at its heart. See, the blood of animals didn't fix the problem. The sins beforehand were left unpunished. It just bought them time. Jesus doesn't leave us hanging. Jesus fixed the problem, and that is something better. I'll invite the band up as we finish up. Friends, I think when I think about the story of me as a 10-year-old, I think in some ways we all have a 10-year-old kid inside us, don't we? 
we all have a 10-year-old kid inside us that is asking, God, are you happy with me? And for some of us, that voice is louder. For some of us, that voice is more quietly. But I think deep down, we all have those moments, those nights on the stairs where we ask ourselves, God, is this really, is this really true? Can I really be right with you? Because I read this good news and it says I can be, we can be good. The creator of the universe can be right with me. And I think even if have that 10-year-old kid that says, now maybe if I do this, then God will be happy with me. Maybe if I perform that, Maybe if I become this, maybe if I pray enough or if I give enough or if I'm a good person or if I don't make any major mistakes. Well, maybe if I go to church or if I bring my kids to Sunday school, maybe if I get baptized or I get, uh, get confirmed or I'm a good spouse and parent, then, maybe then God will be happy with me. And that 10-year-old kid picks the thing and we rely on it. And we put our faith in it. And somewhere down the road, we realize that thing won't save us. That thing won't bring us in right standing with God. Regardless of what it is, if it's, a part, if it's the law, if apart from the law, there is no right standing before God. But friends, I've got good news. You can be good with God. God can be happy with you. A righteousness from God is revealed. But it's apart from your morality. No one will be declared righteous in the sight of observing the law. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And it's apart from your pedigree. Many of us, like me, from Western New York, come from either a Catholic or another religious background. Being Catholic does not put you in right standing before God. Being a Baptist does not put you in right standing before God. Being a good Christian does not put you in right standing before God. Righteousness from God, apart from the law, is given through faith in Jesus. And it's been 25 years, and here I am in a church and God is not happy with me because I'm a pastor. God is happy with me because when he looks at me, he sees Jesus. My atonement cover, whose blood fixed my problem once and for all. And here's the thing, I still wake up in the middle of the night and wrestle with this idea, God, did you really mean that? I, that's hard for me to believe that I'm right with you based on nothing I've done, nothing I've become, nothing that I try to, to strive towards. And then I remember the last four weeks and realize, what is that? It's nothing. I have nothing to offer God. 
all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So all I'm left with is Jesus. But he's enough. Friends, you can be right with God. But it takes an active faith in believing. When I'm up at night, I have to actively believe, actively process, say, God, I trust you today. I choose today to actively have faith that we are in right standing despite my behavior, despite my morality, despite my, my actions, despite who I am, what I've become. And if that's you, if you wrestle, if you worry, if you fear, if you have anxiety in your soul, I've got great news. You can be right with God. And if that's you today and you want to talk to someone, you're ready to talk to them. If we have elders in the room, elders, would you just raise your hand for a moment just so we can identify that you're, you're here? We've got a couple in the back here. Please come and speak to one of us today. We would love, what Pastor Milo and myself, one of the elders, we would love to talk with you more about how you can be right with God. God will be happy with you. And the good news is, it's not based on anything you have to do but placing your faith in Jesus. Let's pray. God, we are so grateful and overwhelmed that when we have those moments on the stairs, that we don't have to answer that question by saying, I'll become a pastor, I'll become, uh, I'll, I'll give enough, I'll pray enough. I'll be a good person. But the righteousness has been revealed through faith in Jesus. Help us to actively believe that when the nights are dark and the doubts creep in. That we can be good with you. We rest on that, we rely on that, we bank our lives on that. And we pray for those whose hearts are stirred now, who are ready to make that choice, make that decision today. I'm placing my faith in Jesus and not in blank. And we love you, Jesus. And we serve you, Jesus. And we'll follow you with our lives. In your name I pray. Amen.